Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. This is The Guardian. The material experience of insecurity, you would be trying to negotiate with your landlord who's trying to put up the rent by a lot, getting evicted for no reason at the end of a lease, constantly moving and never really being able to set down roots. And that has serious long-term consequences for the one-third of the country who rent. Increasingly, I think this constituency is going to be more powerful and start to force the major parties to act. I'm Paul Karp, Guardian Australia's Chief Political Correspondent. Today in the pod cave, I have Queensland Greens MP and housing spokesperson Max Chandler-Mather. It's been a big sitting week in Canberra, and one of the big things that has been furiously contested is Labor's proposed $10 billion housing future fund. This is the Albanese government's signature housing bill, but it wasn't able to pass this week because the Greens accused the government of not making any significant concessions in negotiations. I've invited Max onto the podcast because I want to discuss uh, that and also some other issues in the uh, Greens-Labor relationship. Welcome, Max. Thanks for having me, Paul. First, I want to start when you entered Parliament. What were the issues that you think drove the Greens' result? Because it was a massive result winning three seats in in Brisbane to join the leader, Adam Bant, in the House. What do you think were the issues that drove that and how has that informed what you've done here in Parliament? Underlying it all was a deep frustration with politics and this sense in particular that on a number of key policies, the major parties were moving closer and closer together and increasingly a large number of people felt alienated and disconnected from politics and unrepresented. And and I think that was the underlying cause in terms of key policies. Cost of living was enormous during the election, in particular housing. Uh, and dental into Medicare and things like that. So that was really important, and as well as deep concerns about climate change and the opening up of new coal and gas. But a lot of our doorknock conversations were basic ones around we should be taxing billionaires to bring dental into Medicare, we should be capping rent increases, we should be spending more on public and affordable housing. And so often you would just have long conversations at the door with the day-to-day issues that affect people's lives. And it was very powerful. And I think for the first time, a lot of people felt like their concerns were being listened to and proposals were being put on the table that could actually change their lives. And and that felt really meaningful, actually, and uh, was a really enjoyable part of the campaign. Both parties uh, claim to have a mandate because, as the Greens point out, Labor doesn't have a majority in the Senate. Uh, Do you think that that feedback from voters has made you sort of uncompromising on some of those core issues once you've come to Parliament? I think there's a broad sense that the reason we were elected uh, to get down to Canberra was to fight 
for a group of people, a growing number of people who don't feel like the major parties represent them at all. And so, yeah, we feel, I think, after this election emboldened uh, to fight for all the people, close to 2 million people that sent us down here. And they understand that we're a separate political party whose vote went up this election. And we have a responsibility to all those people uh, who expect us to go down there and not just roll over the moment uh, the Prime Minister might be a bit mean to us. Graham, before the Greens, correct me if I'm wrong, you used to be in Labor left, didn't you? A long time ago. um, Yeah. And I was briefly a union organiser. And uh, yeah, that is a bit of my background. I mean, uh, it, uh, I left around the time that Labor was reopening uh, Manus and Nauru and um, cutting the single parents' pension and felt like they had um, there was almost no hope of shifting that party internally uh, in the direction that it needed to go. I wanted to ask you about theories of change because there are two views about what the Greens do in politics. One is the sort of benign view that as a progressive force outside the Labor Party, you're able to drag Labor to the left. Um, The other is a more pessimistic view that the Greens are sort of splitters, that you'd be able to achieve a lot more if all of you were sitting in the Labor caucus. Uh, You know, for example, the Labor National Secretary, Paul Erickson, um, levelled that charge at at Greens leader Adam Bant for splintering the progressive vote when he was speaking at at the National Press Club. Why are you of the of the former view and what do you say to the the latter view? Crucially, on a lot of policy areas, Labor's no longer progressive. In many ways, they're a centre-right party these days. You look at their support for the stage three tax cuts, uh, support for mandatory detention of refugees, uh, their unwillingness to contemplate increasing taxes on corporations, uh, to big corporations to fund social services. And the Greens as a social force have been enormously effective at already winning change. If Adam Ban hadn't been elected as a Greens member in 2010, we wouldn't have dental into Medicare for kids. Uh, their uh, clean energy finance corporation and arena only exists because the Greens were in the balance of power. And I really believe that the future of the Greens as a political party, not just as as an increasingly growing force in parliament, but what we've proved is our capacity to organise on the ground and wielding that larger and larger social group of people who feel locked out of politics and unrepresented and organising them into a powerful social force on the ground and in communities, door knocking and rallies and, and free food programs are running at the moment. Uh, that's also a, a big future for the Greens and it's not just in Parliament but on the streets as well. Now, I want to turn to the Housing Australia Future Fund, uh, the bill which negotiations are stalled at the moment because the Greens party room decided this week that you weren't going to be progressing it in the Senate, you weren't going to allow it to come to a vote. Um The Prime Minister has accused you of playing politics on this issue. So if we're in a housing crisis, why aren't you voting for a housing bill? Well, I noticed the Prime Minister said that uh, if it doesn't pass, he's willing to do just take the bill to the next election. And as uh, an ABC radio presenter put it to the housing minister, that doesn't sound like the words of a man who's taking the housing crisis seriously. We're pushing back because our view is that Labor's current proposal will see the housing crisis get worse. They're not spending $10 billion in housing. They're getting $10 billion of public money and gambling on the stock market via Peter Costello's future fund, which last year lost 1.2%, so it would have been a $120 million loss, not a cent spent on housing if it had been set up last year. And then, crucially, the current shortage of social and affordable housing is 640,000 homes. 
that's due to grow by 75,000 homes over the next five years. And Labor's plan is to build at most, conceivably from 2025 to 2030, uh, 30,000 homes, which means at the end of their five-year plan, the crisis will be worse than it is now. And then finally, they're not doing anything for renters, like literally proposing nothing. And that's one third of the country. And we're talking about families sleeping in their cars, copping $200 a week rent increases and being evicted for the first time. Uh, where Our point to the government is that they're taking a bucket of water to a forest fire. And then over the next year, it would be an abdication of the responsibility of every parliamentarian to say that this this one this sort of suite of policies Labor are proposing that are not only deeply inadequate but will make things worse is not good enough. Now, you say it would see the problem get worse, but that's because of overwhelming demand for social and affordable housing. I don't understand you to be arguing that the bill itself makes the situation worse. You recently went out on a door knock on, on this issue and, and posted to your social media that I think it was maybe 80% of people wanted you to not go along with the with the government's bill. Mm. Uh, what what did the other 20% tell you and what do you tell constituents if they say that, you know, something is better than nothing? There was a lot of people that, so, I mean, on the 80%, like, firstly, uh, and that was across the country, by the way, collating a lot of um, um, door-knocking data, the conversations basically consisted of people saying, well, uh, we know the government has enough money. They just found $368 billion for the nuclear attack submarines, which is breaks down to $12 billion a year. Uh, how it is shocking that at most they could foot up $500 million a year, at most, by the way, for housing. And I'm a private renter and this does nothing for me and I really want you to hold the line because they understand that the government needs to be forced to recognise the scale of the crisis. Does hold the line mean block the bill though or, or not not allow it to come to a vote? Well, of course, in a negotiation, uh, we need to be prepared. One of our uh, things we need to be prepared for is not to support the bill because we feel like it would be leaving behind millions of people who this bill does nothing for. And uh, that feels like an abdication of responsibility for us. A lot of other people, to be honest, felt like um, they hadn't been informed and that uh, they hadn't heard enough from the government about this uh, who uh, wanted to hear more and, and and listen. And for them, they were appreciative that we were there just talking about the housing crisis, like giving up our weekends to go and try and organise people um, to fight for this. Uh, you know, I, I think the government is misreading this at the moment. I Perhaps they don't, under, they don't understand the depth of feeling and material consequences of um, doing so little for the housing crisis. If there were the same number of people waiting to get into a hospital, 640,000, or into schools, this would be a national crisis and there'd be a national cabinet meeting called immediately. But why is it in this country that we think housing, which should be an essential right for everyone in, in a wealthy country like this, is, is almost an afterthought for the government? Like, imagine if schools uh, were reliant on returns on the stock market to get funding. And, and of course, we don't think that's good enough. You say that they were appreciative that you were talking about the crisis, but were people appreciating that, that a hardline negotiating strategy, no bill passing, mm. at least until budget week was the way to go? Well, no, they said that you shouldn't roll over if the government doesn't make um, significant concessions uh, and uh, we're still waiting for the government on that. And I think because on the ground, uh, ordinary people get it. They get that. The only way to get change is to stand up to the people in power right now and tell them to come to the table and start to offer real money. And the 
for especially for something as essential as housing. And I think they've watched this government just announce that hundreds of billions of dollars for the nuclear tax submarines. They've watched the government defend the stage three tax cuts, which will see every politician get $9,000 a year. And they've said they've clocked correctly. There is enough money in the budget and this is a question of priorities. And they want someone down there making the government realise that housing should be a major priority of this government, not just an afterthought. Now, instead of a $10 billion fund uh, that then you spend up to $500 million of, of the earnings out of, the Greens want $5 billion every year of direct spending. But you did you did say the other day that that was an initial offer, uh, which in another portfolio was described, I guess, as an offer, not an ultimatum in, in the safeguard climate context. So what possible areas of compromise are there? Is it the amount of direct spending each year, or if they do something for renters, then you could support? Well, of course, we're willing to negotiate, and we've said that from the start. I should note on the $5 billion that, as I I think I said before, uh, the government's own institution has said that we need $15 billion of investment every year in social and affordable housing, the National Housing Finance Investment Corporation. So we think the federal government chipping in a third of that when they found so much money for tax cuts for the rich and nuclear submarines uh, is a reasonable ask. Uh, It's in fact not enough, but we think it's a good uh, starting compromise offer. But of course, we're willing to negotiate on that. On renters, uh, yes, we want something material done for renters. Ideally, what we like uh, is them coordinating via National Cabinet, uh, national freeze on rent increases, uh, you know, for the next two years, because there are so many people on the brink right now that one way to stop more people needing social housing is to make sure they get to stay in their private rental. And the way to do that is to make sure that rents can't be put up by another hundred bucks and ship a whole bunch of more people onto the streets. Your objection is in one way fundamental to the structure of the fund, to have a future fund and then only to spend the earnings out of that. But some other senators that have concerns the bill doesn't do enough have other solutions. So David Pocock has said you could double the fund mm. from 10 to $20 billion and spend more by removing that $500 million limit. Mm. So is the objection that we don't fund public schools this way, is that so fundamental that you can't go along with the future fund model or could you overlook your objection to what you call gambling on the stock market mm. um, if there were other improvements? Yeah, we could. So one way you could do it is you could amend the current bill to mandate that $5 billion has to be spent on housing, public and community housing every year. And where the funds returns don't reach that level, extra money is uh, appropriated out of the budget. So uh, yeah, that is, that's one way of doing it. Ideally, we'd just like money appropriated every year. But of course, uh, we could live with a scheme that uh, uh, retained the, the future fund model, but guaranteed $5 billion uh, of spending every year and where the returns aren't good enough, extra money is taken out of the budget. That way we um, people on the, who are in need of housing can be sure that every year the government is spending real and substantial money on building public and community affordable housing. And the point is that if you do that, you can build homes quicker. So one of the key issues at the moment is the government can't say how much money the future fund will return next year. They can't. And that may, makes it very difficult to get homes on the ground quickly. But if the government just fronted up in the in this coming budget, say $5 billion this year, you could start building homes right now. And uh, I think one said one person stopped me on the street and they said, Max, 
um, the housing crisis is right now, so I don't understand why the government's talking about a future fund. This crisis is not in the future, it's right now. And that I think that sentiment is, is reflected across the country. Have the government offered you to top up the funds where the $500 million isn't met? So basically the future fund over a long time has had a very good performance. I think it's 9% annual returns recently. You make the point that it went down last year. Has the government said to you if it, if it has a shocking year and we don't um, get the $500 million spend out of it, we'll top up to that $500 million as a floor, not a ceiling? Back to floors and not ceilings. Um, look, I don't want to prejudice negotiations, but I understand that the housing minister was um, pushed on this in public and there's no guarantee to that effect. Uh, and I think the other point to make around the future funds returns is a lot of economists have pointed out that the economy's uh, national and global economy is going to be in a really dire state for the next 10 years. You know, you just saw a bunch of banks in the US fall over, Credit Suisse almost collapsed. And because uh, this is getting a bit technical for your listeners, but uh, because the Federal Reserve in the US and the RBA have stopped uh, f- pushing an enormous amount of money into the economy, that is having flow-on consequences, which means returns on the stock market are going to start decreasing over the next 10 years. And the point Cameron Murray, an economist at UQ made, was one of the flaws in this scheme is at the moment when the economy tanks is precisely the moment where you need more investment in public housing. But under this scheme, every time the economy tanks, there's actually going to be less money for housing. It's a really um, counterintuitive and silly way to address a social crisis that gets bad just at the moment uh, where the stock market starts to decline. I followed all that and I'm, I'm sure our, uh, our listeners are up to it too. But $5 billion a year when we've got, you know, labour shortages, uh, anyone trying to build a house or do home renos will also say, you know, the materials are incredibly expensive at the moment. Aren't there sort of real limits in the economy that having a higher figure on how much the government is going to spend on it doesn't necessarily overcome? Is there an argument that $5 billion a year is irresponsible given the inflationary environment? That's a, a really good question. So, What everyone in the housing sector says is that what's happening this year is we're seeing a big decline in the private construction industry. So apartment approvals, actually uh, dwelling approvals, so houses, uh, recently declined by I think about 24%. And the reason that's happening is for a few reasons. It's the cost of construction, but actually it's the RBA putting up interest rates, which is making the cost of financing building homes more expensive, which means the private industry is starting to exit the market. And our point to the government is, and certainly a, a lot of other bodies have said this as well, uh, even certainly the CFMEU and master builders, both on different sides of this argument, have said the government can do more because there's actually going to be a freeing up of construction materials and skills as the private industry declines. And our point is this: we should seize this opportunity. There is going to be timber, steel, uh, carpenters and uh, sparkies uh, who might be sitting idly by because the private construction industry is declining or we could be putting them to work building much more public and community housing. So this is actually quite well-timed to have this debate and it's a point to our government is that the positive economic flow-on effects could actually be quite great. 
The next thing I wanted to ask is where are houses going to be built? Because I think there's a very interesting dynamic out there in in cities at the moment where older generations that are more likely, not everyone does, but more likely to own their own home and to have done well out of property price rises over over many decades, uh, they're more likely to oppose development, you know, not in my backyard, that building's too tall, uh, you know, that sort of objection. Whereas younger demographics who the Greens are polling very well in, you know, get a lot of votes from younger voters, um, more renters, possibly renting for life, don't see themselves uh, getting into the housing market without significant help. And recently, I think a strain of yimbies, yes, in my backyard, because they rightly understand that more supply of houses is the only thing that's going to bring prices down. So do the Greens have a responsibility, uh, you know, because you have representatives elected at local councils as well to be part of the solution and to find places to build them and not just make demands for money? Yeah, really good point. And we have um, certainly in Brisbane located lots of public land, including in my electorate, where we could be building really well-designed public housing. Uh, in just prior to the pandemic, I visited Vienna, which is a city in Austria, where actually 60% of that city is some form of social housing. Now, they have a population density triple or quadruple Brisbane's, uh, but they have nailed good medium density design. So apartment towers can't be any greater than five storeys. But uh, when you do that across a city uh, and large areas, that gets good densification, but you retain connection to the street. And crucially, they also provide for public parks and community facilities. There's childcare centres embedded in the bottom. Our problem with the way development's done at the moment is it's led by private property developers. And what they do is cram huge luxury apartment towers into areas without contributing to public infrastructure. And it, I, I think I'll maybe pull you up on a point around supply. Uh, a lot of good housing economists will point out that property developers just freeing up, you know, relaxing zoning restrictions. And I know that uh, Prime Minister and the Treasurer have talked about this and just allowing developers basically to do whatever they want does not drop property prices for a very crucial reason. Property developers will only build where it is profitable to do so. So we've noticed over the last five years, a million homes were built in the private industry. That's a record number of homes, but house prices spiked because property developers will look at the market and they'll sit on empty land until it's profitable to build on it. I'm sure everyone of your listeners might live in an urban area where there's this inconspicuous vacant block of land, and that often is a property developer who will only build when it's profitable to do so. And our point to the government and in public is that around the world, actually the solution is to build a much higher proportion of public and affordable housing. And that way, you you don't just build when it's profitable to do so, you build to make sure people get homes. And that actually is the only thing that really starts to tackle the problem. I wanted to ask about the fault lines and politics in terms of home ownership, because one commentator after the uh, Conservatives did poorly in the New South Wales election results said it's it's unsurprising that given falling home ownership uh, rates among, say, millennials, that if young people don't have anything to conserve, they're not going to be conservatives. Um, do you think the Greens are benefiting from that by positioning yourself as the renters party? If you look at the most recent federal election, according to the ANU electoral study, if only renters voted in that election, the Greens would have got 22% of the national vote. And 
Uh, certainly in Queensland and I think across the country, you look at Adam Bant's electorate, I think 60% of Melbourne are renters. You're right, there's this broadening, growing social constituency who, uh, as that commentator alluded to, feel quite locked out of the economic system and increasingly frustrated that both major parties are really not offering them nothing on that. And uh, certainly a lot of our volunteers and our, and our more active base as well are often low-income renters or students or uh, even just people locked out of the property market who are asset poor, who feel really compelled now to fight for a different sort of economic system that actually gives them something and gives them security. And certainly I look, all my adult life I've been a renter and it's been fascinating to me actually the material experience of insecurity, like even I, I've been in I'm obviously in a very well-paying job now, but prior to that, uh, you would be trying to negotiate with your landlord who's trying to put up the rent by a lot, uh, getting evicted for no reason at the end of a lease, constantly moving and never really being able to set down roots. And that has serious long-term consequences for the one-third of the country who rent. And and, uh, with neither major party willing to contemplate capping rents or freezing rent increases, no real moves uh, except outside of the ACT where the Greens are in government to... Uh, stop no-grounds evictions and give people rights or tackle negative gearing and capital gains tax concessions. Increasingly, I think this constituency is going to be more powerful and start to force the major parties to act. Now, you said on the housing bill um, you have to be prepared to vote it down. That's a slightly tougher line than your party took in the safeguard bill, which was often not ultimatum, um, perhaps haunted by the CPRS and not wanting to get accused of voting it down. Why, why were you able to do a deal on that bill, which was revealed on uh, on Monday, uh, that Labor and the Greens had come to agreement. Why, why were you able to do a deal on that and where did you stand on whether to continue to push for, for more ambition or whether this deal was good enough? Well, I think the first thing to say on safeguard is the government made real and substantial concessions. Now, a hard cap on emissions uh, is not everything we want. We wanted no new coal and gas but it potentially stops up to half of the 116 coal and gas projects in the pipeline. That's really significant. And that was as a result of a big public campaign and a lot of public pressure. Uh, and uh, what our point on housing and that point I make around, of course, we're willing to, uh, should be willing to vote it down, is I think any reasonable person would understand that when you're going into a negotiation, if you immediately say to the Labor Party, look, ultimately, these are the things we want, but Uh, in the end, if we don't get anything, we're just going to vote for it anyway, well, then the Labor Party just won't offer anything uh, as a reasonable negotiating partner. So it's it's my strong belief that we need to be able to mobilise people in the country, door knocking and rallies and and community organising, and use that as a social force that allows us to go into parliament and say, well, we feel confident that we could defend the decision to vote it down if you don't make substantial concessions. And the reason we feel confident is because our responsibility is to the millions of people that your proposal might actually leave behind. I want to ask about your personal position on The Voice, uh, because Mark Dreyfus is introducing the constitutional alteration bill in Parliament today. Mm. Well, first, what's your personal position on Voice? And and did you support the change that the Greens made in the order of uh, the Uluru statement to, to ask for treaty first? Yeah, I, I support the voice. And, and I think the thing to say is, yes, of course, we would prefer the order to be truth, telly, um, treaty and, and voice. And, and precisely because a lot of people, you know, that uh, progressing all of them at the same time is crucial because if we do the truth telling, like if we have that up and we start to negotiate treaties, that makes the voice 
the success of The Voice more likely because the country is brought along on this much more substantive conversation about the dispossession and uh, disgraceful things done to First Nations people um, since colonisation. Uh, and uh, a more mature and, and comprehensive package makes Voice more successful. I think the reason I support The Voice is, crucially, I don't think it's going to solve every problem in this country. And uh, you know, when we're talking about Aboriginal deaths in custody and the government failing to introduce their, all of their recommendations or we're talking about the Bringing Them Home report or we're talking about real substantial investment, by the way, in First Nations housing, which is terribly underinvested in, um, the voice is not going to fix all of that. But I think the argument that a good demo- voice democratically selected by First Nations people uh, uh, being in the room and at least giving them a platform, I think, is really is really important. Uh, but it has to occur in tandem, and in future, the government we need to keep pushing the government to progress uh, treaty and truth telling. Uh, and uh, at this point, it would be disastrous if the voice referendum is not if not successful. It, it could be a real body blow to a lot of First Nations people and the broader country, and they feel like I think, uh, in a way. Um, rejected by the country. And so, yeah, we'll be doing everything we can to make sure it's successful. Now, Senator Lydia Thorpe pushed very hard when she was a member of the Greens uh, for that reordering of, of truth-telling, then treaty, then voice. She won that. She had you all singing on the same song sheet, although some people wanted to give more full-throated support for voice. And then she went to the crossbench to sit as an independent anyway. Mm. Do you think that the party would have fought so hard and for so long for that reordering, um, if not for for her advocacy in the party? And do you think you should have switched on to talking about the positives of The Voice sooner? Because our latest Guardian Essential poll uh, found a decline in support for The Voice and the biggest declines were among 18 to 34-year-olds, women and Greens voters. Mm. So did the limbo over that issue uh, drive support for The Voice down among the Greens? Well, I think Lydia was and continues to be a really passionate advocate for First Nations people. You know, she grew up in public housing. She's been in a lot of those communities. I would never begrudge um, someone as staunch as Lydia getting out there and fighting um, for her people. I know she said she just wants less Aboriginal people to die, say, in custody. Like, that's... I think we, as a country, we need to be able to have a, a mature understanding that not everyone's going to agree on everything all the time, but accept that people feel passionately about an issue and have lived it there as their own personal experience. And as I said before, I think the chances of successive voice become more successful if we are capable as a country of having this broader conversation about truth telling and treaty and what that would mean materially for people. Uh, and I, I think we can sell the voice to the public if we bring together that broader conversation as well and then ultimately say uh, policies are more likely to be positive for First Nations people if they're in the room having a say. Uh, and I, I really hope and I'm going to push as hard as I can to make sure voice is successful, um, but I think as a country we should be able to listen to the voices of First Nations people now as well and that, of course, includes... Lydia. Um, And perhaps it's a good demonstration if we are able to have a mature conversation as a country that the voice could be successful because even where voices we don't agree with speak up, and I mean that to the um, broader public as well, we can listen to them and respect them. Do you think you approach um, these issues about whether to compromise and get incremental improvements uh, or be more absolutist? Do you approach it differently because you're an MP? I'm just thinking that the Greens 
have for so long been a, a Senate only or a Senate mainly party until until Adam Bant and then you and your two colleagues from Brisbane entered the the lower house. But they're different tasks for an MP and a senator. A, a senator. The Greens, if you get 12% of the vote at every half-Senate election, you'll get, you know, one out of the six senators from every state. So you've got a sort of core Greens constituency that you need to keep on side. As an MP, even in a very progressive part of the world, like in a city, Brisbane, you've it, it, the median voter that you've got to worry about might be, um, you know, someone who's normally a Labor voter or someone who's normally a Liberal voter. Do you think about these issues about whether to compromise differently as a result of having having constituents like that that might not normally vote for the Greens? Well, I think the first thing to say is the Greens have a good history of working with uh, Labor previously to push and win substantial reform. When it was just Adam Bant in the House uh, and the Senators, they were able to get dental into Medicare for kids, for instance, or world-leading climate legislation with the Gillard government that includes some institutions that are still here today. So that's always been a strong history of the Greens and at the same time is fighting for what's right. Look, my experience in the electorate is um, part of the reason uh, we won was because people wanted to send people down to Canberra, representatives down to Canberra who would fight for them and and did feel like uh, the major parties had moved closer together. So I don't really feel that tension at all, actually. It's, um, I in fact, feel a responsibility to an electorate who um, had got sick of the major parties and wanted someone down there um, fighting for them uh, on a policy platform that was enormously popular. Uh, so no, actually, and I will say that it has felt fantastic actually working with this party room, uh, this Greens party room, because the work and the collaboration between the Senate, the senators and the lower house MPs, hopefully to the public has looked, uh, effective. And it really has felt effective actually in my first, what is it? Six months or whatever in the job. Speaking of effective, I think we've been very lucky that we haven't had a division that uh, has called you away to be effective as an MP while we were recording. Uh, So thanks very much for your time, Max. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Paul. This episode was produced by Mel Chun. The executive producer is Gabrielle Jackson. The Canberra team will be back with another episode of Australian Politics next week. Thanks for listening. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hi, I'm Dori Shafrir. And I'm Kate Spencer. And we are the hosts of Forever 35. And today... We're talking about Club Med, the best all-inclusive getaway for families. Today, Club Med has nearly 70 resorts worldwide, from beachside resorts in the Caribbean and Mexico, to magical locations in the Maldives and Morocco, to ski resorts in the mountains from Canada to the Alps. Between their all-inclusive family programming, wellness offerings, land and water sports, and their French heritage-inspired food and drink offerings, Club Med is the best way to elevate your family getaway, no matter which location you're at. To learn more, visit clubmed.us.